the number one biggest thing is that they make a book that looks like every other book or if they make a book that looks like just not good. They, they don't hire the right artist that uh, they don't hire a good cover designer. They, or they make a book that feels so much like every other book that it doesn't stand out in the marketplace. For many of us as a kid, thumbing through a comic book could transport us to other worlds. Flying through the universe at the speed of light. Watching immortal enemies battling to the death. And some of us never grew out of it. Welcome to the Under the Mask podcast, where we discuss the super process behind superheroes. Not just superheroes, aliens, horror, Thrillers. If you can find it on a comics page, you can find it here. Here, you'll learn how to make comics. From the initial outlines, scripts, and artwork, to printing and putting the final book in a bag and board. For many years, Bill Colomb has written his book, Kinetic, and sold thousands of copies across the nation. And now we're inviting you along for an inside look to the comics process. If you're a fan of comic books, a total process junkie, or just looking for more insight into launching your own book, you're in the right place. This is the Under the Mask Podcast, and this is Bill Colomb. Under the Mask Podcast, episode 25. This is a longer episode than normal because my guest this week is an absolute legend in the indie comic scene. He has a lot of advice and wisdom, and it was a great conversation. My guest today is a USA Today best-selling author, prolific comic book writer, and host of his own podcast, The Complete Creative. He's the editor and main driving force behind the anthology series, Cthulhu is Hard to Spell, and author of over a dozen novels and graphic novels. His latest work, a graphic novel called Ichabod Jones Monster Hunter, is live now on Kickstarter. You can check it out at www.russellnolte.com slash Ichabod Volume 2. I'd like to introduce Russell Nolte. Thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So uh, the first thing I'm going to do, just the first thing I ask most of my guests on my show is uh, tell us a little bit about your story. Who are you and how did you get to be here today? Sure. So I am a USA Today bestselling author. I write novels, but the thing and comics, the thing that people know me for is comics, though, and anthologies. Probably um, people know me most as the editor of the Cthulhu is Hard to Spell anthology series and Ichabod Jones Monster Hunter and then my God's Verse Chronicles. I've run 13 Kickstarter campaigns, including the one that we are currently doing right now for Ichabod Volume 2. And yeah, I've been doing this for quite a long time. People always ask me how I, when I started and I tell them that's really hard to put pin down as a creator. Like the first thing that I ever had made was in 2005. Uh, the first full length movie I ever wrote was in 2006. The first like movie I directed was in 2007. The first comic I wrote was in 2010. The first time that I went on Kickstarter was 2014. My company officially launched in 2015. So on some, uh, I've been doing this for some amount of uh, between 15 years 
years, really more like 20 years and six years, depending on what you consider like the start of a writing career. And uh, that kind of takes care of my second question, which was, uh, when did you get started as a writer? Uh, but more, more so than that, when did you feel you took the step from amateur to professional? The day that Ichabod launched probably on Kickstarter, uh, I had been, well, it's tough because like I've been, I've been, do you mean as a writer or do you mean as a creative person? You know, I had to have a degree in broadcast journalism and literally the first thing that I did out of school was I was a camera operator on Capitol Hill. Then I started doing like DP stuff on movies. I got sent to Denmark on a movie one time, which was pretty cool as a second unit DP. Uh, so, I mean, that's when I think of my creative career started, but I, I would say that when I started really launching these books, eh, no, no, I would say 2011, I'm going to go back because I did have a, before Ichabod came out in Kickstarter, I had a deal with, uh, with Viper comics for a while for digital release. And then I got another deal for a novel called Gumshoes, the case of Madison's father. And so I was doing things professionally before then. Um, but the money was very, very little. I would say that the first time that I was like, Oh my God, I could actually make a living doing this was September, whatever, eighth, whatever, 2014, when I launched my first campaign. And after that month, I was like, wow, like that's $5,000. I think that's more than most of my companies had made in total. Yeah. And obviously over the years, you've held many hats doing a lot of creative things. What drew you to writing? It's the only thing that you can do that you don't need anyone else to be part of. Honestly, like I'd, I directed and I've DP'd and I edited and all of that stuff requires other people to do something. And it was really heartbreaking when those projects fall apart. And I found myself for years trying to pull back and pull back and, and until I had, you know, I could do something with just a couple of people. And eventually when I started writing novels, really just one person and an editor, not that an editor is not a person, but to make a comic, like you, you absolutely need an artist uh, to write a book though. By the time you send it to an editor, it's mostly done. Like it, it's 90% done unless you're working with a development editor. So really, especially when you know the craft of writing, you know, a, a novel can be done with mostly just yourself and then people there to catch your mistakes and make it better and polish it. A comic can be done. Most of my comics are done with a one person team. I, mean, I really don't even like hiring another letter. I really like when it's literally just me and one other person doing the entire thing from beginning to end. At least for me, I know with the comics, it's a whole creative team. And I'm just started doing like a prose novel. And I'm like, oh, this is like, I don't have to hire anybody. <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah, it's, it's, it's prose is so much different than comics. Uh, I mean, I love both mediums. I think I've written 20 novels and uh, I've, uh, I've done a lot of comics. So I think I've had a career in both things and they both are wonderful for different ways. I, uh, I have only done one comic though that had a team, uh, whether it's Ichabod, uh, and the anthologies, obviously they have like 70 person teams, but whether it's uh, it's uh, Pixie Dust or Ichabod Jones or even new projects that I'm working on, really it's like me and one person. And I really like the intimacy of that little creative team so that we can sort of create in a, in a bubble. And before we get talking more about Ichabod Jones, Monster Hunter, can you tell us a little bit about your writing process? What goes into writing a comic like Ichabod Jones? Oh, Ichabod is very different than every other comic that I've written. So, um, my process is generally I will stack projects one on top of another. So Ichabod, for instance, I write 
I can write the trade in less than a week, uh, but it's because it's been gestating for eight months. So most of my projects start with just the gestation period of somewhere between a year and two years. Then once I have the voices down and once like I've done the development work, I can show you this whole, for instance, I have a secret project that I'm revealing next, that I'm going to be launching next year. And this is the Bible that I've been working on since 2018 that has all of the sort of work that we did, I did for the the first four novels in that series, the next novels. And so I will gestate on this stuff for years. When I started writing the God's Verse Chronicles again after Katrina Hates the Dead and then Pixie Dust, it had been something that had been simmering for since 2015 to 2017 when I started finally writing those novels. And that allows a lot of thinking and a lot of time to just let things percolate. And then when I'm finally writing, the words come really quickly. So I write about 5,000 words a day for a novel, which means that I can do, I have found that I can do two issues of comic book in one day, but that's really, you know, from, from, so I wrote volume two, 10 years after writing volume one. So like, yes, it came in less than a week, but it had been really 10 years coming that I've been thinking about it and how it was going to operate. Volume three, uh, I wrote eight months after volume two, but I'd been thinking about it again for eight months. And then volume, I just wrote volume four again in, it took me two days, but I had been thinking about it for eight months. So once I sit down to actually write that project, it's fully formed and I can get it out really quickly, but it's because I've been, and, and, and then once I finish Ichabod, I could go to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, and they all come very quickly, but it's only because I've had time to sort of gestate on it. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, so maybe, maybe you'll think I'm crazy for saying this. One thing that I do, like when I do something, I'm not writing it, but I'm thinking out the scenes. I actually act out the scenes, kind of standing up and saying, what would happen here? What would happen there? That's uh, It makes it easier when I go to write the scene saying, okay, I acted it out. No, I mean, I think that that absolutely makes sense. And uh, artists use that all the time. I mean, actors and directors do that. I wouldn't writers for movies and TV do it. My, my friend, when he writes novels, he literally speaks the entire novel every time he does a revision. I don't have that kind of mental fortitude to take that time to like listen to my every draft of the book. Um, but yeah, I mean, the the beautiful thing about writing is everybody has a different process for it. And whatever gets your brain to that place is the right process for you. So uh, you were saying that for writing a novel, you'll write about 5,000 words a day. Is there a different process for writing a novel versus writing a comic? Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, a comic is a is a blueprint and a novel is an actual, like, is the finished project. So when I write the... So uh, the reason I can get two issues done in a day, I think, and not like five issues, because literally a, a comic script for four issues issues of comic is not even 5,000 words. So I should be able to bang that out like in one singular day with revisions. But I think well, the reason I can't is because when I'm doing a novel, I'm thinking of the scene and like, what's the next scene or what's the next chapter? And the same thing happens in a novel, in a, in, a, in a graphic novel. So instead of having a thousand words be a chapter, you have 20 pages as a chapter and you might have three scenes or five scenes inside of, of each of them. So I find that um, either way, I, my, my gears are turning for the next sort of, let's call them five pages or 10 pages. And I can do, you know, uh, my, my scripts are roughly 20 to 24 pages, uh, almost always 20 
20 pages, I've found that I can tell a really good story with like four good turns in 20 pages. And so I, I think in the 10 page burst and that 10 page burst seems to be roughly a thousand to 2000 words of script writing. The difference is that I can write the actual words of comics in five minutes, 10 minutes. Um, whereas you actually have to write all thousand or 2000 words. But the process for me is pretty similar, especially because I came from movies and TV and then to comics and then to novels. Uh, I, I really do think on a scene by scene and image by image basis. And I think of like how I'm going to end that chapter or end that, 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 that scene on a good page turn or a good twist. So, yeah, I mean, there, there's some differences in just literally the function, how you write it. But as far as how I think about it in the scripting stage and in my brain, I kind of, I have this Fitbit watch and I, um, I, I, every like 50 on the hour, it vibrates and says, you haven't taken any steps for the last hour. So I go outside and I kind of like walk around my backyard and I just like think really hard for those 10 minutes or five minutes that I'm walking. And I'm like, what is the next thing? And I have a, a, an outline. That's, that's, the, that's another thing that I don't have an outline when I write my comics. I have an outline when I write my, my, my novels just to keep me on track. And because it's just so many more words and so many more things. And, and I need that to keep it on pace. But for comics, it kind of is the outline and blueprint. So I'm always thinking when I'm out there walking around, like, what is the next thing? And honestly, that goes back all the way to when I started writing because I worked full time then. I've only been doing this full time since 2015. So I, uh, I, I, when I would drive home, when I would drive to work, I would be thinking about the last thing. And then when I drove home, I was thinking about like, what's the next thing that I'm going to write for that night? And then I would kind of flush all of that out. And then the next day I would do it again. So instead of doing that every night, I'm kind of doing that every hour. I'm building it up and then flushing it out and then building it up and flushing it out until there's something that approximates a book or a comic issue at the end of it. Isn't that how it always seems? It's uh, we want to get the finished product to what it approximates something final. <laughs> yes. And I, that's true with even a novel. And and I think what you're doing writing, you, you learn what your process is. For instance, for my process, I know 5,000 words like a day. I can't, I can't, I can push it to six. I'm going to feel terrible if I push it to six. Like I can get 5,000 words done or two issues of comics in a day. Um, and assume this is assuming that I have the outline and I've been thinking about and all the other pieces. And, and, and I also have learned that I need to really be writing. I, I need to, to have things stacked on top of each other. So I need to not be, I, I can write at most two books in one universe at one time. And then I need to break because I will have flushed literally all the ideas out of my brain for, for two books or like two issues or whatever the unit of measurement is. Uh, so I need to then go to the Godsverse Chronicles or to the new secret project or to whatever the other thing is, but I need to have multiple things going. And I now know why artists, why writers have always told me that they need to have at least two projects going at one time. And it's, it's sort of, you spend all of this time building up and then you flush it out and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm bereft of ideas, but I happen to have this, this book happened to unlock seven cool ideas for this other series that I've been thinking about. And then you go to the other series and you burn out on that. And then you flip back to this series. And so I found that the way to not have to take months off between series is to just have two or more things going on simultaneously. I don't know if that answers your question. No, that's, that's some great insights, man. 
Well, Russell, we've talked a little bit about your process. Uh, let's get to what I think you obviously want to talk about right now, which is Ichabod Jones Monster Hunter, which is live on Kickstarter right now. You can check it out at russellnolte.com slash Ichabod volume two. Russell, I really do want to talk about that book. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about Ichabod Jones Monster Hunter. So Ichabod is the hardest book that I've ever made. Easily the hardest book that I've ever made because it is so unique and it's so odd, the conceits. So Ichabod Ichabod is about a psychopath that escapes a mental asylum and becomes a monster hunter, but doesn't know if he's killing monsters, humans, or it's all in his head the whole time. So not only is it part horror, part action adventure, part dark fantasy, but it's also a mind screw. And that has to come through for the entirety of the book. And so, like I said, I've, it's not that hard to keep a mind screw going for one volume, but like every time I go back to Ichabod, I have to have not just what's a cool story, but how will it work? How could this work three different ways? And how can I not get people, not make people get lost in one piece of it and forget all of the other like potential? So it is, it's really tough. I, you know, I write a lot of books and I've written a lot of things and Ichabod is, is it's, it's like this wonderful, weird thing. And I'm so happy that, you know, we've, we've done almost 12 issues of it, but God, it is is a bear. What was the original inspiration for it? It was my screw you to publishing. So uh, I originally in 2010 took a book called The Wannabes, which is friggin' adorable. It's about fake superheroes that get real superpowers. They live in this world where like superhero powers are passed on from one person to the next once that person dies. And uh, this like mass is big, like the biggest hero in the world dies. And like he has basically five, he's so powerful. He has five different powers. Powers. And these like the, the these like want to be like cosplaying kind of like LARPing superheroes happen to like get all of his power or most of his power. And it's about like how they like what happens once they have to take the mantle up and, and all of the things that they dreamed about start coming to fruition. And maybe like all of the part, good parts out, don't outweigh like the bad parts. And suddenly like their families are in danger and all of these other things. So it was a lovely pitch in 2010 you'll get a kick out of this because like clearly you uh, have a superhero book um uh, i took it around to every publisher and they said why would i make a superhero book i could just get them from marvel and dc and uh, i mean this was in 2010 this was way before like people were actually making superhero books in, in uh, uh, independently i think maybe the boys was out and uh, invincible was out but like it was not a normal thing it was not normal to just see like superhero books on the indie and in the indie space. Uh, so I kind of went home with my tail between my legs and I still freaking, I really want to do that book someday, one day, one day I'll go back and do this wannabes book. Like, like, I can't believe it. Like this, this was the shot. So I didn't like have money. I hadn't had a job in a long time. You know, I was unemployed. I was like, we had scraped together this money to do this like eight pages and cover. And I was like, this is the thing. Like, this is the thing. Uh, my manager had showed me all of these comic books. And I was like, I, I, I think I know how to make this. I think it's going to be really good. And to, I was like basically roundly rejected, like a roundhouse kick right to the face. And uh, so I came home and I was like, you know, I like the wannabes. It's very cute 
cute, but like if I'm going to get rejected from a publisher, I want to really be rejected from a publisher. Like I want to do the weirdest thing that I could possibly think of. And um, I know there's a lot of kind of horror stuff about like mental, mentally ill people who like kill people and such. And I didn't want to make that book, but I thought like, what if this guy was what uh, uh, had been cast off from society. And I mean, like, not just cast off. I mean, like, literally, like, he was in jail for killing a bunch of people. He's objectively evil. Because, like, is there anything to redeem this person? And, you know, I was like, and what if, like, he becomes this monster hunter in the apocalypse? But, like, and then what if he doesn't really know what is real? Because he's already been told that he's been killing people. That he's, he's already thought that he was killing monsters and he's really killing people. So, like, what happens when it happens again. And that was sort of the seed. It's like, yeah, that is way too weird to ever like get picked up by a publisher. And like, that's the one book that I've ever had, by the way, that ever got picked up by a publisher. Uh, when did you first publish uh, Ichabod Jones? So uh, Renzo started, Renzo and I started production on that book, 2010. Um, it had a 75 unit release of issue one. I believe it was in 2011. And then the first four issues came out in Viper on 2012. This was back when Comixology was like not really, I mean, not that it's super creator friendly now. Um, sorry, Chip. Um, but uh, it was really like a black hole then. And the books did not come out in the order that they said they were going to come out. They came out. Let's say it was March, April, May, June. They were supposed to come out the first four issues. They came out like March, May, July, August. It just was haphazard and uh, did not did not endear me to that publisher. And then they were supposed to do a print run of the volume one. And they said, look, we're not going to do it. Like you can go to Kickstarter and do it yourself. And then like, we'll publish it if you make the money. And I was like, going to give you a thousand units of my book that if I'm going to Kickstarter. I'm going to publish it. Like this is ridiculous. So, you know, no hard feelings, you know, uh, Jesse and Viper, you know, we parted ways, you know, it just wasn't a, wasn't a great fit. And, you know, things out of both of our controls just kind of made it, uh, m- made the project. And, and frankly, it was weird. Like, it's very weird. I mean, you've read it. It's very weird. You know, I mean, where do you put that book? It's not horror. It's not really fantasy in the first volume. It's very fantasy in the second volume. But like, where do you shelve this book? Like, how do you where do you put it in preview? Like, what do you run ads to it? Like, how how do you even so I, I got the rights back. They uh, they they took all the books down and I um, and I went and I published and I did the Kickstarter in 2014 for the first volume. And I, I needed to raise thirty five hundred dollars. We ended up raising fifty five hundred dollars. And that gave me just enough money left over to incorporate my company. And considering that Ichabod was a big F you to publishing, um, it felt right to uh, call my company Wannabe Press, which was both this sort of snide like, well, yes, I'll always be a wannabe, but at least I'll be able to publish my own stuff. And B, it was like the name, the actual logo for wannabe press, not the B, but the logo is the wannabes logo, the original wannabes logo. So just to put this into perspective, I just want everybody to know kind of my personally, how I, how I got into Ichabod Jones as a reader. So this has started 2010, 2011. The first releases were in 2012. You had launched the Kickstarter in 2014, but I didn't even know about Ichabod Jones until you you relaunched it last year and that was uh, 2019. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so Ichabod has been slow. Ichabod is this because it's so weird. It needed some time to find people who love it. Um, this is the thing that I learned uh, during this book uh, is that books can find their audience over time. And it took four years. It took seven printings. This is the eighth printing behind me of Ichabod Jones Monster Hunter that you helped and all the people that helped with the campaign um, uh, helped us with last year, raise the funds to do Ichabod, to reprint that book because it was going out of print. And there was such a backlash of people that I decided to bring it back. If we, I said, if we can fund this book, I will do volume two and three. I can't promise more than two and three, but I will give you at least two and three. And that was be, the reason we were able to do that is I don't have it up, but I have a book called Katrina Hates Dead Shit. And Katrina Hates Dead Shit was a book that was so popular that it basically funded my company, basically allowed me to go to shows and just bring Ichabod. And I had a thousand copies of Ichabod Jones Monster. I had a and then uh, when I went and did the hardcover run, I did a thousand copies of Ichabod as well, because like it wasn't very much, it wasn't much more expensive. I think it was only like two grand more. And I was like, okay, I'll do a thousand copies of Ichabod. And it had just like slowly simmered under the surface. And then as the company got more popular, I got more popular as a creator and people had read Katrina and came back to my table. They were like, what else do you got? And I ended up like having Ichabod and people started buying it and people started loving it. And people started coming back and asking me questions about like, what, what the hell even uh, uh, is like, what is going on? And what, how is, how was it going to end? And frankly, like, how could you possibly bring this character back for like more? Cause I was not intending to bring him back for more. And so, yes, it was a, it, it was a crazy sort of road from 2014 until I finally pulled the trigger uh, in 2019 to do more. And thank you for, uh, for backing it. No, oh, no, thank you for putting out an awesome book. <laughs> I love that. That's what I tell people too. If the novels that I was launching did not go so poorly in 2019, I frankly don't know if there would be more Ichabod. So kind of like, thank everyone for not buying my novels until this year, I guess, <laughs> because uh, it allowed me to get back. And Renzo is so great because Renzo has been begging me to do, my, as any artist begs, like once a year, he will come back and be like, are we doing more Ichabod yet? 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 And, you know, I've never had an artist who cared that much about a project before. <laughs> and so it wasn't just just a project that meant a lot to me. It was a project that meant a lot to him also. And so as we've been going through this journey of making more books, you know, we've kind of opened up about like how we were both in really dark places when Ichabod won, we were making Ichabod one and how it like really helped us. And I think that kind of also embedded itself in the, the bones of the book and probably is a reason why people respond to it so much. But it's very weird, right, Bill? It is very weird. Uh, like you were saying, saying, where do you place this book? I'm thankful that on my bookshelf, I don't place anything by genre because, yeah, I wouldn't find no place to put it. Yeah, I mean, my favorite stuff is stuff that like defies genre. But as a person who really writes fantasy and a public and someone who's learned more about publishing every year as a publisher, I totally get why like people would have trouble figuring out what to do with this like weird book because like, it's very hard to pitch it's, and it's also very violent. Uh, so not a not against people though there is some of that in the first volume, but very violent against like other monsters and there's a lot of blood and stuff. So like, what do you, like, where do you put it? Do you put it in like a vertigo black label? Like, do you like create your own sort of like uh, action lab, like danger zone or whatever? Like, what do you, what do you do with the book like Ichabod? And then how do you just let it, because of how comics work, they don't just sit on the shelf. Like they don't just sit there. So you have to have a kind of pitch for it. And there's just no easy way besides just finding a bunch of people and telling 
reminding them that it was about a mental patient that escapes from an asylum and becomes a monster hunter, but doesn't know if he's killing monstrous humans or it's all in his head the whole time. And then watching whose eyes lit up that like you could possibly know. Is there a way that you can kind of tell now if somebody walked, well, obviously we're not doing conventions now, but if somebody walked by your table, can you kind of say, yeah, this guy's an Ichabod guy, or is there still no way to really, until they hear the pitch, you don't know? So the the Ichabod, the eighth one has the the title on the cover, but they used to just say a psychopath's work is never done. And when people would point to it and laugh, I would say that you, like, you're going to like this book. Or, but now, uh, honestly, people just go like, what is that? You know, because it's striking against the other books that are on my table. It's sort of like, dark and it's stark and it almost over seven printings i learned how to like display ichabod in a way that it sort of sold itself to people so i mean frankly if you look at the b behind me melissa the wannabe melissa is very much based on invader zim and so if people are like you Dude, dude, that looks like Invader Zim. Or like they like the B, they'll probably like everything at our table, especially because uh, both Cthulhu's and Monsters and Other Scary Shit was drawn by uh, Zim character designer Aaron Alexevich. But yeah, I mean, it's not a, 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 a one-to-one thing, but the difference is lots of people pick up Katrina and then put it down. Much fewer people pick up Ichabod and put it down. Usually if someone has picked up Ichabod, they are going to buy it. And uh, maybe I have to drop the price a little bit or uh, maybe like I have to tell them that it's did that there's a digital edition or like maybe I have to sweeten the pop by adding a pin to it or something. But like there's something about like the visceral reaction that people get when reading the first couple of pages of Ichabod that because there's so few books like it, as opposed to Katrina, where like while I love Katrina, you know, it's it's very much an action adventure, post-apocalyptic, like girl smashes zombie in Facebook. You know, you've seen I mean, I think I put my own spin on it, but it's very much like in that vein. So you could be like, yes, this is good. I've read 20 others like this, where I think if you pick up Ichabod and you're like, what is going on? Um, you are you are going to like want to read more. It, it's very hard, I think, if you if you respond to Ichabod to not at least delve down the rabbit hole. And I mean, I know some people have bought it and, and said it was just OK, or some of the reviews are like, it's pretty good. It's just real short. And I'm like, well, try it now. Cause like now there's going to be like 16 issues at least, but yeah, I, I don't know if I can, t- I, you can tell cause their eyes kind of light up. Like their eyes just like go wide and they go, what is that? Uh, and that's the, I mean, that's the best because uh, it, like it, it almost always will lead to either a sale and, and Ichabod is the most predictive book of people who buy other books from me. So like, if I can get them to like Ichabod, they're pretty much like going to be set. Because like, if you like weird stuff that like is defies genre, you're that's kind of my jam. Publishing your own books. What are some mistakes or pitfalls to watch out for? Uh, and also, what is the upside for it? What's, I have 7,000 books in my garage right now. Um, because I don't know how to really sell the, uh, the overstock that I usually sell at shows. Uh, I would say that the biggest thing that people do, well, there's two biggest things. The number one biggest thing is that they make a book that looks like every other book or if they make a book that looks like just not good. They, they don't hire the right artist that uh, they don't hire a good cover designer. They, or they make a book that feels so much like every other book that it doesn't stand out in the marketplace. And I don't think that every book has to stand out in the marketplace, but I do think that it's very helpful if you have a punch in the mouth book that is like, 
like, whoa, what is this? Is, looks like nothing I've seen before. I think that I'm, I, I was helped by not reading books past like 90, between 95 and 2010. So like comics, because I, I just came in with my own like visual style that like I, I wasn't, I didn't know about Umberto Ramos, for instance, until after I had started making Ichabod and I didn't know Giant of the Homicidal Maniac until after I started making Ichabod. And so it was all this stuff that I was like, oh yeah, that's totally in like the wheelhouse of things that I like. But I was able to sort of come in without this, like this needs to look like a Jim Lee book or this needs to look like X, Y, and Z book because I care about Ichabod because I care about like, I care very much about Jim Lee instead of like, this is the style that I think will fit the book. And I think that too often people are looking for an artist because of some some idea of what they think comics is instead of the style that they think will be good for the book. And so really, you know, I think that you should watch everything and read everything and at least look at thousands of, of pieces of art of all types divine your style. So I don't think that it would be uh, that anyone would be shocked to know that like usually Spanish or Argentinian painters are the ones that I respond to and animation. So like I love Miro and, 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 and Dali and Basquiat and all of these very surreal, surreal painters. And uh, I like animation that like that, you know, the, this beautiful like cell shaded or, or, or even like 3D animation or two, really 2, 2D or like 2D or 3D that looks like 2D animation. But like that is sort of the aesthetic. And the, the second thing that I would say is and, and, and like your book has to be world class. Like it has to look world class. Like to have any shot, it has to look. There's just too many books out there that like don't look that, that, that look world-class that are freaking amazing that like you just don't have a shot it actually sucks i was talking with this marv wolfman about how people used to be able to break in doing backgrounds or like have some talent but have to develop and now it's like really the development is oh you've got to do all this stuff under the radar and then like you put this amazing book out and now everyone wants to work with you i know because like i work i have a tendency to work with artists that suddenly like get very popular after a book is done or while we're working on that book. And I'm, I don't say world-class meaning like it has to look like a Marvel comic, but it has to look like an amazing art and amazing experience. However, that is, I don't think any of my books look like Marvel comics, but they all look like professional and world-class. And once you have that, you have that forever, you know, like our books will last forever. Like they will just exist after we're dead. Like assuming that hard drives don't get corrupted, they will just last and last and last and last and last. And and it's really important to understand that, yes, it costs a lot to make a great comic, but it's something that you're going to have for the rest of your life, especially the interior art. You know, the cover you can redo, like you can redo again and again and again. But like I've been selling Ichabod number one for 10 years because we sold it to Viper and then uh, and then we sold it to our to, 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 to people and then we sold it at conventions. And I've been selling that for 10 years on some level. So like the, these books can can stay with you for a, for for a whole heck of a long time. And, you know, I mean, I, and, and 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 I'm not if, if you really want to make a book that looks like a Jim Lee book, then there's nothing. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm just saying don't make a book that looks like every other book for the sake of making it look like every other book, like make the book where the art and the writer fit together. 
um, I spent so much time doing this, uh, like looking for artists and like having a list of people I want to work with and who I want to go back to and, 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 and whether they would be pleasant to work with or not, or all of those things. The other mistake that people make is, you know, it's really important to develop a house style so that you, the fans, you can bring the fans from one project to another. So, you know, um, you know, uh, you might have a book that has eight or 10 or 20 issues and that's the thing you're focused on. But for me, focus on a lot of different stuff. And I would like the people that like Ichabod to buy other books of mine because, you know, that's how I make a, a living and not just doing Ichabod 2, but doing other stuff of, you know, the Cthulhu books. And you can really tell that like all of these books kind of have a house style, right? They all kind of look like one person could like all of these books, even though they are different style, even though they are different stories, the art at least looks sort of similar. And I learned that from Oni, like Oni, just like when you think of an Oni book, you know, they have 50, they, they expanded out after a while, but they had like the Oni style. Like that was the Oni style. You could think of it in like Scott Pilgrim and, and, and all of those books that are like it that I'm not going to name. Um, but you know, they, they, and, and even when they started expanding out with like Colin Buns and six guns, you know, it still had that very cartoony style. It looked like it could be in that world. I think it's really like SLG had a really sort of tight line of, you know, books that looked like their books. And when you're small, you really have to say that, okay, all of these people, I have all of these fans, I'm going to make something else. I really need to have the ability to have them like the next book. And that starts with comics, with art, unfortunately, like we're creators, but like, like it, part of the creation process for me, the part that makes it lovely is finding the right artist and like having that magic happen and having that test page come back and having an artist be like, yes, I thought this was going to be the right book for you to work on. And look at this, like it came, it was, it's so good. So yeah, those, those are some pitfalls. The others are like, you know, just upgrade to better paper, like upgrade to the nice stuff. It's so expensive to get anything printed. Printed, but it's so relatively cheap to upgrade to slightly better paper and like a slightly better experience for your fans. And like, they are going to remember those, those little touches. You know, there's a reason we print in hardcover because nobody else prints in hardcover, at least at my level, like nobody prints books in hardcover. So when I go to a convention and I'm sitting at a small press table, when I've got 10 hardcover books, like who's got 10 hardcover books? Like nobody's got it. So like suddenly I'm setting myself apart from everyone else that's at the show. Yeah. And that's one thing that uh, I wanted to just uh, say was you were talking about, you know, finding the right artist for the book. And uh, I think it was when I was looking for colorists because I do a superhero book and I wanted it to be a very, a very colorish flashy superhero book. So when I was looking for a colorist and uh, had all the submissions being sent to me and there wasn't a bad portfolio but there were portfolios that weren't right for the project that I was like, man, it's really great color work, but it's just not what I'm looking for. And yeah, I think that's something that most people just want to find the best artist they can, but don't put that extra layer of thinking. Yeah. And sometimes the best artist is counter cyclical to like the style that you think you're going for. So I also think that opening up and broadening out the kinds of artists that you may be looking for to hire is important as well. Like I just went and I hired an artist for a book and there were two distinct styles. One was very Scott Pilgrimy and one was 
was like hundred bullets and like they could not be more different except that they were in, in, in a vaguely similar style. Like as far as like cartoonish versus realist, because like it has to fit in the line. But aside from that, you know, they were very, very, very different. And my gut said like, I should hire this person, even though it was against like theoretically what I probably should have done. And, and I just had to follow the gut instinct of like, I know this is going to be a dark book, but there's a lot of gonzo comedy in it as well. And like, I need it to like, do I play up the hundred bullets, the aspect of it, or do I pull out the like more gonzo comedy of it? And both of these people have different strengths. I ended up going one way that I won't discuss now because it will totally ruin like the next project that I am working on. But yeah, you know, I mean, it's hard because your gut is usually wrong and your gut is usually right, but you have to train it to be right. And, and, and just because an artist isn't right for a project doesn't mean you can't make a project for that artist. I do this all the time. I'm always asking artists, like, what is your dream project? Or like, what is the thing you really want to work on? Or like, what can we work on together that you get really excited about? This is another piece is, I mean, I haven't done this in a long time. So you know, I haven't hired a new artist who I'd never worked with before in a very long time. One of the things that I remember when I was doing my first books was like this fear because lots of people don't, they don't finish the book. Like, like a lot of art, just a lot of artists just abandon projects like for different reasons, either like they get a better job or like maybe they stop doing art or maybe like the pay rate was too low or whatever the thing is like. But what it normally is, is like they don't like the project or the creator enough to like keep going. So it's really important that like when you're hiring an artist that they really love your book because any artist that's worth drawing your book could draw a hundred books. You, you have to find somebody that really is going to grok your story and different people. I mean, you can just look at like this kind of stuff that Rob Liefeld does and the kind of stuff that Grizz Grimley does is very different. So like there's all sorts of artists and they all sort of grok different 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 styles, but you really need to find somebody. I was very lucky with Renzo that, you know, with Ichabod, like he just loves that book so much. And while I worried at the beginning that it would not be finished, it was finished. Like it was done, like, like, like he finished it. And and now 10 years later, I, I'm so lucky that I found uh, Renzo. Also with um, Katrina Hates the Dead, like I, I made sure that I really loved the art. I made sure that I really told the artists how much I loved and appreciated them. And with Katrina Hates the Dead, you know, the artist started working for Dark Horse at the third. He's like, dude, like, I can't keep working at this rate. Like, I really want to keep working at this book. But like, you've got to up my rate because Dark Horse is paying me this insane amount of money to do like their book. And I was like, and, but he didn't just abandon it. He came and he told me that like, either I had to wait until after the Dark Horse project, which could have been, I don't know, months, could have been a year that we were delayed or I had to up his rate because like, that is what he thought he was worth. Or I don't think it was, it was up his rate. I think I had to hire an inker or he's like, I can only do pencils. I just don't have time to ink or color or any of this stuff. Like all I can do for you is the pencils. And I was like, and, and, and for the same rate as he used to be doing pencils and inks. So I was like, okay, I've got to hire I, like, like, okay, like, thank you for telling me. Like now I, I had to improve my, I had to, uh, to increase my budget. I had to like 
sock me in the gut, but he came back and he finished the book because you know, he respected me as a creator because I had respected him. And I had told him we, we had like as much fun as it two human beings could have making a book, which is not often fun. He respected me as a creator, even at the beginning of my career, because I made sure to go out of my way to make to get him invested in the book. And I gave him autonomy to make the kind of book that we wanted to make. And so often creators want to make the book they want to make. And really the the the, the joy of, of, of finding the right artist, it is letting them figure out what the book is. You send the script and if you've hired the right artist, they're going to come back with something insane that you did not even think about. And too often creators are there to, uh, trying to micromanage every panel. There's a saying in directing, which is once you once you've hired the actors, your job is 80 percent done. And so, you know, once you hire the I think the same thing about artists, once I've hired the artists, my job is to support them, to be there for them, to answer questions for them, to have a great script that they want to to make and then like let them do everything that they want to explore. If I say five panels and they want seven panels and they can make it work like I'll rewrite the script for that whatever they need, I, I will do that thing for them. And, and I just want to give them the space to do their best work. And that's something that I think I have taken to my whole career, which is my job as an editor, as a writer, as a publisher is to allow everyone around me to do their best work, whether that's an editor, whether that's a proofreader, whether that's an artist or a letter or collaborators on an anthology piece, I need to take everything away from them. I need to like make sure they don't have to worry about deadlines or promotion or like whether they're going to get paid or any of that stuff. They just need to make their best work, their absolute best work, then magic will happen if they're allowed to just play on the page. And if they enjoy the work, they will finish the book. And that is the most important thing because the, 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 the hardest time as a creator is when you're in the middle of an issue or for me, when you're in the middle of an entire book. Uh, creatively, what has been your best moment? Oh, this is really tough because there's been so many like amazing moments. I think, though, it's the first time that somebody came back to my booth after buying my book and told me how much they liked it. I can't even remember the exact like th- I can remember the feeling of like. I always feel like I'm tricking them because I'm a very good salesman. And like, I always feel like they're going to walk or they walked away from the booth and being like, what did I just, I just dropped $40 like on this thing. What even happened? And so when people come back and tell me how much they like the book and how much they enjoyed what they read, it really means everything to me because that's the key. But um, that's one half of it. I don't know. I, the other half of it is just like doing the anthologies and, and, and jamming out to other creatives work and sort of being the hub of all these creative activities, you know, uh, and, 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 and allowing people to have their creative freedom and do their book. I tell people, cause I do a lot of marketing. I'm like, I'm very selfish. Like I want there to be more books in the world that I can then buy. And the only way that there could be more books in the world is if more people know how to do marketing. And yes, I, charge for those things for some of those things i try to make as much as free as possible but like i really the end goal is like i want you to make your thing so then 
I can go and buy it and I can have it then in my collection. Uh, I don't know if that's an answer. That was, that was, there's just so many. I, they, they all flood together in my brain when I think about them. Um, there was, there's one moment that was actually funny though. Um, I was at a show and I have this book that I drew called Gherkin Boy and the Dollar of Destiny. It's about a pickle that fell into a black hole and has to get back home basically. And uh, it's absurdist comedy and the pickle, uh, and the, the pickle kind of looks like a penis. Kind of looks like a, it's not my intention to make it look like a penis, but like, you know, anything with two big eyes and then like a kind of like pickle shape kind of looks like a penis, no matter what you do. And so uh, I was sitting at the, this booth and this woman runs up to me, well, not runs, but she like st storms up to me and she has my books in her hands. And I remember selling her books and I'm like, oh Christ, like what happened? And she goes, did you drop penis in my book? I was like, no, I would never do that. That's, that's not like a thing. Like, I mean, I like a good dick joke too, but like, that's not appropriate. And, and she's like, cause I was sitting with my friends over at this panel and like, this is not a penis. And I was like, oh no, that's some, that's a character named Gherkin boy from this book that I did. And we both had a very good laugh about it. And I have hundreds of other pleasant stories like that. You know, there was one, like the first time that someone dressed up as, as one as Ichabod um, was amazing. I had this one family, the Cook family, which just like they've supported me since literally the first time I ever did a convention, my first convention ever. Like they bought Ichabod and they've just followed my career since then. And like I've watched their kids grow up. Yeah, I mean, they're, I, I, it's really the fans, like all of them, you know, I, this job is so hard and there's so little money in it, at it, even at the top, uh, even at the, or whatever, whatever the place, even in the, the, the grimy middle place that I'm at, that like the only thing that makes it worthwhile is that people are like reading the books and enjoying the books and that I'm, and that the people that I'm working with are having fun making the books with me. The actual process of making the books is grueling and like monetarily uh, expensive. But what makes it worth it are the people that buy the books, read the books, and the people that I make the books with and being able to build those relationships. That's been the whole thing for me since day one. I've, I've, I've owned many companies where nobody ever watched the stuff that we made. And so to have people read my work now and, 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 and want to make stuff with me is, 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 is absolutely the most creatively fulfilling part of, of it. Um, but with singular experience, I don't know if I could bring it down to just one experience. The selling out at at, at, at uh, San Diego Comic-Con was pretty great. Uh, being able to like the first time I went to San Diego Comic-Con and I had a book and I could give it to people, like give it to creators was very satisfying. Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's all great. It's all great. I mean, you know, I it, like any job, there's a plus and a, there's like minuses of it. But the idea that somebody can read something that will make something from the weird stuff in my head and then someone else will buy that weird thing is it's still mind blowing to me. The part that keeps me going is that there's someone on the other end receiving that transmission and loving the work that we do. And I know they come for the art. I'm not a sucker. I know they come for the art, but like, <laughs> I'm hoping that like I can get them with the art. And frankly, the art is also partially me because like I am hiring the artist. Like I am art directing the aesthetic of the work. And 
I think we take too much, not blame, like we take it too personally when people say that they love the art. Whereas like we hired the art, like we hired the art, like that that's, that's not our art, but like we are catering an experience, right? Like a whole experience. That's the beauty of comics is the beautiful interplay of words and art together. And like that you like the taste that I have for this artist is, 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 is not, like it's not me making the art, but it is me making the selection of the book. Like the book exists in the way that it is because I hired Renzo and allowed Renzo to do his best work. Again, not like, I mean, but what I mean by that is like we talked about before, it's like I, I allowed Renzo to, to, to play on the page and like not leave anything, hopefully like in the can, like he, he did amazing work. And that was also partially me. The pages got done and the artists got paid. That was partially me. I gave them the script and the script said specific things and they interpreted that in their own way. But all of that is the same as the interplay between art and words. It's all the interplay between art and words. And while I don't think that we can take which we're not taking, I'm not taking credit for the art, but each of the books that I've done is a very different experience. And I'm very much catering that experience every single time. And it should not be treated as like a kick in the teeth when someone says, oh, I really like the art, but I didn't read the book. It's like, cool, man. Like, thank you for saying my taste in art is really good because like this is, I thought that the art was great also. And like, that's a big part of the experience. You know, it's like watching a movie from Dennis, uh, Denny Villeneuve and being like, like the art is, it's visually stunning. Like Blade Runner 2049, regardless of what you think of the story, the art, the, 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 the visuals are absolutely stunning. And, and, and that is because he hired a DP. Like he has a visual aesthetic that he wants to get through. And the director, once they step back from the thing, doesn't say, oh, well, like, what about the script? They say, thank you. That was an amazing. It's like, like, thank you. Like uh, the uh, Roger Deakins or whoever the, the, the DP is like did an amazing job. You know, I gave him these things, the production designer did this. And like, they are appreciative of all of the other pieces. And I think that us as comic creators, like we should take pride. And when someone says the art is great, cause you're like, dang it. I know. Like, that's why I hired him. That's why I paid this artist thousands of dollars to make this book. Because like, I believe that he could deliver and he did. And if if you're going to give me money for the book or like you were going to read this book, then like a big part of that is me, even in the art, because I chose the artist. They didn't just, he didn't just magically bring these pages to life. Like I went out, I found test pages. I found artists. I, or I like got a referral, however you did it. Or I knew this artist for a long time and I thought I had a project for them and boom, I, I, I then I put, five, 10 grand on the line for this book. And like, yeah, like I believe in this artist enough to hire them to do this book. And I, uh, and I appreciate that you appreciate my faith in the artist to deliver. It's been a while. I'm not as practiced as you. Uh, if this were your podcast, Russell, this was the complete creative. What, what is it? This is the time that we tell people to stop what they're doing, listen in, because uh, it's about uh, advice that you have to give. What's the best advice that you can give to someone who wants to do what you do? All right. So, I mean, you probably have heard to just do the thing and just make the stuff and let's do the thing. Like, don't worry about X, Y, and Z. So I'm going to give you the advice that I always give, which is different from that. It is that you must find a way to separate your self-worth from the thing that you do. As an, as a creative, 
we are almost always on the outside looking in, you know, everything that we make is from scratch. And almost always people will say that that's weird or that's different because the thing is different. Our job is to make something that is different. So, uh, you know, when I went out to a publisher and they, uh, and they said yes. And then they said no. And then I had to pull the rights back and all of the stuff. And I finally had that book that was in my hands and then it sold out second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh printings. And I was like, yeah, that's great. Like my, like, look, screw you publisher. Like, look, I like did it. I'm like doing it. I made like over a hundred grand last year in revenue at least. And like, I'm, I'm like victorious. And it was really easy for me to latch on my self-worth to the stuff that I was doing. And, um, you know, then we just kept going up. You know, we had my father didn't kill himself. We had pixie dust. We had Cthulhu and Cthulhu. And my, my self-worth was pretty high at that moment. But then like it always does, you know, there's going to be bumps in the road. You know, I've had a lot of bumps in these past two years. Understand that I have intrinsic value as a human outside of the things that I make or the money that I make that like it is a part of me, but not the whole piece of me. If for some reason the money went away, I would still be a complete human. I would still be a husband and a brother and a friend and a son and all of these other things. If that one piece went away Um, and when I talk to creators, I always try to tell them that like, you have to find a way to understand that you have the same intrinsic value as Bill Gates and the same intrinsic value as that homeless person on the street. Like you have, you have worth for just existing. And that doesn't change if you make a billion dollars or you lose a billion dollars. That is separate from who you are and what you are as a human. And More importantly, maybe not more importantly, but you will have peaks and valleys in your career. If you followed the last year of my life, I made $16,000 on the Ichabod 5. Then I made $9,500 on um, $9,900 on the Godsverse. Then I made $31,000 on on, on Cthulhu. It's hard to spell too. And then I made $9,500 on the Summer Slate. And then I'm going to make, I don't know, maybe 20 grand on this book. There's a, there's an arc to all of that stuff. Like they like, they, they didn't all make $31,000. Some of them made a lot less than others. And some of them made a lot more. And you also will have books that do worse than previous books in the series. So for instance, Ichabod one did $39,000. Ichabod two did $31,000. Like people still think that's a huge success, but $8,000, imagine just losing $8,000 bill. Like you just lost $8,000. Like that's not a, it's not like an easy thing to deal with. Even if if you had success, like that's still like, imagine if it went into your bank account and just took $8,000 out of it. Like that's, that's $8,000 you expected to have because like book two should do at least as good as book one. Um, on Kickstarter at least, but that's not always true. All of these things, all of these factors, all of these variables will come at you during your career. And if you, if if you tie your self-worth to the projects and the money that you make, you will be on a roller coaster and it will be unsurvivable. It will be, you, it, it will be unsurvivable as unsurvivable as any other creative who's dealt with this stuff for their whole career. And you've got to find a way to understand that like you have value, even no matter what you're, what you're, what you are worth, there is still value there. Ichabod Jones is live on Kickstarter now through October 1st. 
You can check it out by visiting russellnolte.com slash Ichabod Volume 2. Russell, where else can we find you online? Yeah, you can go to uh, Facebook. You can go to my website, russellnolte.com. And are you uh, anywhere on uh, social media? Oh, yeah. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Russell Nolte. Uh, I generally don't do Instagram. I am trying to get better at Twitter. I am. Uh, if you like weird, if you like memes about death, grief, loss, and junk, and fairy tales and mythology and monsters, then my Facebook is uh, the best place to find me at Rus- facebook.com forward slash Russell Nolte. Russell, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Happy to do it. If you know a creator that makes comic books or any other media and think they'd be a good fit for the show, Drop us a line at under the mask show at gmail.com. You've been listening to the under the mask podcast with Bill Colomb. Welcome to the family. If you're a fan of comic books, a total process junkie, or just looking for more insight into launching your own book, you found the right podcast for you. Thanks for listening, and make sure to like or leave a review, and we'd appreciate it if you'd tell a friend or two. To reach out, visit us at underthemaskpodcast.com. This has been a presentation of Y Comics. Till next time, this is the Under the Mask Podcast, signing off.